The Way Out Podcast, episode 18. I feel like I've always been a couch surfer and a traveler. Uh, even when I was a younger, just traveling around town in our six and a half square mile city, uh, uh, I went from house to house, various grandparents, aunts, uncles, mom's house, dad's house. Uh, it was pretty hectic. It felt like a nomad of sorts. Yeah, yeah, and that's carried with me uh, into adulthood. I think I was uh, probably 13 or 14 when I first experimented with uh, marijuana. I had definitely progressed, uh, and I, I did keep using. Uh, and as the over the next few years, I used more and more. And actually, when I was 18, I had this mission to just get high every day. I was kind of proud of that, too. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the new official blog of The Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes and following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Way Out Podcast. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll be talking with Roger F. He'll share his experience in active addiction and alcoholism and his experience after working the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous. Roger, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I wanted to have you on the podcast because we just got done reviewing some fairly monumental material within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's step one. But before we do that, I want you to take an opportunity to introduce yourself to the Way Out cast listening community and get them a feeling for who you are and, uh, you know, uh, where you grew up, where you, how you ended up here in the great state of Minnesota. And then we'll uh, start talking about step one. Let's do it. So how old are you? I Go ahead. am about 13.7 billion years old. That's amazing. I came to this planet uh, January 10th, 1982. So I've been here about 35 years almost. And where were you born? Port Huron, Michigan. So for all of those folks who live in Michigan, he's one of you. And I feel like there are uh, two different Michiganians. Is it Michiganians? Is that the right term? Michiganites? Michiganders. Michiganders. Yeah, Abe Lincoln came up with that term to make fun of some, some guy who was running against him in Michigan for... Something. So you're a Michigander, and there's the trolls and the youpers. Yes. And which category do you fall into? I'd be a troll. You are a troll. So you did not grow grow up in the UP. No. I, I had a chance to visit once, and it was beautiful up there. It really is. In fact, a coworker of mine is a is a youper, and I remind him of that uh, quite regularly, actually. <laughs> So uh, you grew up in Michigan. How long did you spend in Michigan? What was your childhood like? Well, it was my childhood. Like, let's see. Uh, what was the question? Bef- I was born and raised in Port Huron, Michigan. I spent 29 years, 28 years. I left when I was 28 or 29, I think, uh, for Kentucky. Okay. 
And what was that like for you growing up in Michigan up until the age of 28? What was the family of origin like? What was growing up like for Roger? Uh, how many people are going to be listening to this? <laughs> At least two. All right. <laughs> Let's see. What was life like growing up? I, uh, Boy, how do I... I would grow up in a broken home, uh, which was difficult for me uh, as a young child. At the same time, I had a pretty decent childhood. Uh, I call my grandmother my, my surrogate mother uh, because of the things going on and the juggling. I've always been a, like, I feel like I've always been a couch surfer and a traveler. Uh, even when I was a younger, just traveling around town in our six and a half square mile city, uh, uh, I went from house to house, various grandparents, aunts, uncles, mom's house, dad's house. Uh, it was pretty hectic. It felt like a nomad of sorts. Yeah, yeah. And that's carried with me uh, into adulthood, uh, which is why I still love going everywhere I can. <laughs> One of these days I'll go on a European adventure, but right now I'm focusing on uh, getting to all the states. That's not a bad mission to visit all 50 states uh, i think that would be an amazing thing so uh, 28 years old when was the first time you used drugs or alcohol i i think i was i think i was uh probably 13 or 14 when i first experimented with uh marijuana i had found it in in uh, an anonymous home <laughs> And I got into it. It wasn't very much. I think that I like convinced. It was one of those things where I convinced myself I was high. You know, of course. As, yeah. as, many as, of us don't get high the first time we uh, smoke marijuana. Yeah. It was the same way for me. Yeah. Uh, so it was like one of those things that children do when when we, you know, drink 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 a shot of vodka or whatever, and it's like I'm, I'm so, so wasted. <laughs> you That's know. Right. Um, but it, I remember when I was 15. It was the Fourth of July. And uh, I couldn't smoke a joint until I learned how to roll it. So uh, my my family and friends sat me down with an ounce of weed and a box of zigzags, like the box that you see at the store. With the end of it, they usually buy them one at a time. No, this was a box, and I kept trying and trying and trying, and I don't know how long it took, but I finally rolled a a, a, a joint and and got to smoke it. So that was my first experience. That was your prize. That was your reward. Yeah. yeah. For successfully rolling said joint, mm -hmm. you got the pleasure to smoke it. Yeah. And, and uh, was that a mem memorable experience for you the first time you got high? The, the smoking and getting high wasn't very memorable. It was the learning how to roll a joint that I remember the most. I don't like I said I don't know how long it took me but uh getting that down I felt a sense of pride and now it was deserving of my reward. Sure. Sure. Did that start off a a period of use or did that was that more of an isolated incident? How did your use progress from there or did it? I definitely progressed uh and I I did keep using uh, and as the over the next few years, I used more and more. And I actually, when I was 18, I had this mission to just get high every day. Well, I was kind of proud of that, too. And why? What was the driver for you? What was the... It, it, did, did you like how you felt? Was it because you wanted to be cool? Why were... What was the driver? I had... I like the way it makes me feel to this day. I still do. I liked it then. I like it now, but a big part of it was uh, making friends uh, in the in the marijuana community. <laughs> I I learned at a very young age. That's how I feel comfortable in my own skin. That's how I can relate to you, sort of deal. Now we have something in common. Let's go get high, and that became my life for for ever. It seems like for quite a long time. I could relate to that when I was in high school and in my early. 20s uh, uh, weed was definitely the drug of choice for me it was first of all it was a lot easier to get than alcohol was at that time because i was underage and uh, getting booze underage was 
a significant challenge and weed was everywhere. And I really did like the way it made me feel. And I smoked regularly. I smoked every day and I loved the way it made me feel. Loved it. And I also loved the community of it and the the bond that I had with my fellow uh, weed smokers. So I can very much relate to that. So tell me about how uh, you're smoking weed every day. You're 18. This is your mission, your mission to get high. Was there any at that point? Was at that point? Was there any thought that it was becoming a problem, or were you just having fun right now? Uh, just having fun. There was no problem. Everything was gravy. You know, I was living the dream. Why? Why do I need to stop? There's nothing going on. I'm... Was Was there anybody externally that was maybe telling you that? Telling me that uh, it was, that a, it was problem? a problem. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. So you're having a good time. Life is good. And we're, we're smoking a lot of weed and we're 18. Does that progress into our uh, uh, early 20s as well? Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure it, it progressed into my early 30s. You, know, never... <laughs> you know, you're not the only one. <laughs> I, I'm just betting there's a few people that can relate to that. Mm, yeah, I'd put money on that. So we uh, continue to smoke weed. When's the first time you drank? I was 17. I'd put off alcohol for the longest time because I'd seen what it did to my dad and uh, other people in my life. But I don't know what compelled me, but it was with my friends at a party, somebody's birthday, had a fifth of Southern Comfort, and uh, was sharing it with me and everybody else. So I might as well. You know, I'm going to give it a shot. And uh, I don't know if I enjoyed it. I remember, like... That community, that feeling of belonging was there. I didn't really like the way alcohol made me feel, but I liked the, what it did for my social life. And uh, I, that night I blacked out. It was my first experiment with uh, getting drunk. Now, at a very young age, I forgot to mention the wanting a taste of the Goldschlager or a sip of that beer, and I never liked it. I never liked it, but I'd like ask the people around me, can I... I was, Probably seven years old when I tasted beer. I didn't like it. I was probably 11 years old when I tasted uh, liquor, the Goldschlager. I didn't like it. So coming along about 17 years old, my pot-smoking buddies had some alcohol, and there I, way I go, and, and boom, I blacked out. My very first time drinking to get drunk was a blackout. Did that scare you? No. So I can relate to that. I was 14 years old the first time I drank, and it was at a party. His parents were out of town, and they had a huge bar downstairs. They had access to every single kind of liquor. There was beer. There was Zima. Do you remember Zima? I know that's not familiar What a familiar mistake. What an awful mistake that was. Nonetheless, the first time I drank... I liked the way it made me feel so much. And I don't even know if I, if that was the prevailing thought that I liked the way it made me feel, but I did. But I couldn't stop. It triggered this, in retrospect, of course, at the time I didn't know that, but it triggered this switch where I could not stop drinking and it just demanded more and demanded more and demanded more. And... I blacked out as well the first time I drank. And I nearly died of alcohol poisoning. And they stuck me in a dog kennel. And they didn't know what to do with me. And they didn't want me to take me to the hospital and call the police because they didn't want to get in trouble. Which was just a fantastic, spectacular example of using and drinking friends. At 14 years old, nobody wanted to do the right thing. They just stuck me in a dog kennel. And they checked on me. And I don't remember any of this. They checked on me, I think it was about an hour later, and I had stopped breathing and my lips were blue. And a friend of mine somehow was able to perform CPR and get me to start breathing again. And then they fed me a bottle of syrup of Ipecac, a whole bottle. That was the solution, was to feed me a full bottle. What's what's Ipecac? A Syrup of Ipecac is a substance, it's a, it's a fluid that, that induces severe vomiting. Ah, I see. 
And I vomit. I proceeded to vomit for eight hours in the garage, and I couldn't stop vomiting. And I felt so sick the next day. Death. Like, literal death. And all I could think about was, I want to do that again. Right. I definitely relate to that. Like I said, my first experience with alcohol, I want to do it again. I didn't like the way it tasted. I didn't like the way it made me feel, but something triggered me. Where I'm like, I got to do it again. And it didn't stop. It just, it didn't. And then eventually with the weed and the community there and the camaraderie I felt and their drinking as well as smoking, I could get it. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem being under 21. I could, I could get alcohol whenever, wherever I wanted. Uh, and that's just the way it was. But it, that that allergy hit me immediately, you know, pretty much. I, I blacked out drunk that night. I woke up the next day. I'm like, I can't wait to do that again. But at the time, it doesn't feel like an allergy because that's our, that is our goal, is to get loaded. Yeah, it was never have one or two drinks and, and feel comfortable or relaxed. It was, I'm going to drink all of it. it. And it came to a point where if you get me started on beer... I'm going to drink all of it. You hand me a beer, you got a case, you only get two or three because I get the rest. I can relate to that. I can even relate to being stopped. Uh, I, I, eventually, as time wore on, people stopped inviting me to parties because I would drink it all. Right. And they didn't want me around <laughs> because I would drink everything in sight. And if they wouldn't give me more... I would be a giant pain in their ass. Yeah, now I'm fiending. Like, come on, come on. Just let me have that one. Let's split that with exactly. me. Come on. Like, there's a shot left in that bottle. Right. Dude, you've had enough. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I stopped being invited to parties because nobody wanted me to come and drink all their booze and beer. Exactly. Exactly. So talk about how that progressed for you as your 20s wear on. As my 20s wore on, uh, boy, I, I remember that period of 18 to 22, those four years are a lot of a blur. I was, I was selling weed because I, now I got respect from my peers because I'm the one with the, with the dope, mm -hmm. uh, drinking all the time. I got into Coke. Uh, I dropped out of high school. Uh, and that's when I really started after the Coke addiction. I knew I had a problem with that because I could not stop ever at all. That was, that was the thing that hooked me. So in order to quit Coke, I decided I was going to drink liquor and I was going through a fifth a day. So there's all that. So four years of my life, I really don't know what was going on. So you went through a phase in the beginning where this is fun. I mean to get drunk. I mean to get high. It's not a problem. I enjoy this. It's a good community of friends that I finally feel like I belong. Uh, weed makes me feel like I want to feel and should feel. I feel right as rain when I'm high and life is good. I'm a dealer now. And now I've got even an increased status among this peer group. So life is even better. Never, don't not let's not mention the fact that we're dropped out of high school not a big deal and you discover coke and for you maybe that was the first experience of being powerless over a drug uh, and the first time I realized I had a problem, I only had a problem with cocaine, by the way. Right. It's not the beer, the booze, the weed. It's the coke. So as long as I cut the coke out, life is good, right? Right, yeah. Just go back to drinking. Yeah, Except now I'm drinking heavily. Because <laughs> we need to have something in our system now that at least rivals or can compensate for what we lost in the coke yeah yeah i needed to compensate i needed to switch and that's when i started drinking a lot more than i had uh before then 
So you had this acute ramp up to uh, a higher and more inc- an increased consumption on a more regular basis, a fifth. That's a lot of booze yeah. every day. How long did that go on? Uh, boy, that's again, that's hard to say. It's all a blur. When I was uh, 22, I hit the road on a magazine crew selling that door-to-door. There were drugs and alcohol all over the place every day. It wasn't even uh, a thing. You could get whatever you wanted, and it that's weird, being able to go from city to city, spending two weeks in there, finding a drug dealer. How do you do that? I don't know, but it was the center of my life. So everything else took a back seat because I needed to get high first. Uh, so, so very quickly, becoming high or drunk became the priority. Yes. Where in the beginning, it gave you ease and comfort, and it added to the quality of your life to some extent. Now, 10 years later, it becomes the most important thing in your life. Uh Probably about, that was when I was 22, 23, when it started becoming the most important thing in my life. So not even 10 years. Yeah, four years. So in four years, it proceeded to become the most important thing in your life. Mm-hmm. Was that a recognition at that point? No, no. It was just the only, only thing I had a problem with was cocaine. I could smoke crack. I did. I didn't have a problem with that. I knew immediately I don't want to do that again. It was just, man, this is this is fucked up. I don't. Excuse me. Am I allowed to use that language? You, 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 you <laughs> it can, was messed up. You can swear. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, that was that wasn't even a wake up call when I'm sitting there and, and all of us was like, oh, well, you know, I'd rather snort it than smoke it. Isn't that funny? Because I think many of us who have been in the throes of alcoholism or addiction can relate to. Well, it's the Coke that's the problem, so I'll just drink. Or it's the drugs that are the problem, so I'll just drink. Or it's the drinking that's the problem, so I'll just smoke weed. Or it's the hard liquor that's the problem, so I'll just drink beer. Yeah, and that's one thing. It was, I took pride again, and now I'm experimenting with all this. So I have this wealth of knowledge based on my experience with all the drugs. Somebody asked me, what drugs have you done? And I'm like, everything but put a needle in my arm. That's it. Like, everything that you can think of. From huffing gas and spray paint. I got to try that. Saw it in a movie once. Oh, I wonder what that's like. Get me a brown paper bag. <laughs> you know, it, it, whatever was out there, I wanted to try. I wanted it. MDMA, uh, cocaine, ecstasy. Well, that's MDMA, but see how my mind works because of the drug and alcohol use. I can't even get it all straight at the time. I'm thinking I'm going to have all this wealth of knowledge. So when I quit, I can go be a counselor, right? <laughs> like, boom. Every recovering alcoholic's dream or every recovering addict's dream is to become a counselor. I think at some point it's pretty, it's a pretty normal deal. It, it reminds me of a story when I was in treatment at age 15, they would not obviously allow you to, have any drugs or alcohol and they would pee test you so there was this deal where if you bent over and uh, uh, breathed in and out in rapid succession and then quickly stood up and then somebody put their squeezes squeezes your neck i discovered that in seventh grade (laughs) that my friend is messed up because oh, it literally, literally cuts the oxygen off to your brain and produces a euphoric effect. Oh, it's the same thing with duster, too. Speaking of huffing, it gives you the same exact feeling. At, you cut off oxygen from your brain with the gas and the spray paint and the duster. You're, you're doing that instead of oxygen and nitrogen, what your body needs, and it produces the same exact effect. See? Genius. That's one word for it. So <laughs> you're in a you're in a state in your mid, early to mid twenties where your use of drugs and alcohol has 
increased in frequency and is it fair to say amounts rather dramatically? Oh, absolutely. You know, we haven't even gotten uh, into into my history with minor and possessions of alcohol. I think I have about 21 of those on my record, so basically they're old enough to drink now. <laughs> I don't even know why that was funny. Let's fast forward now. When did you realize that you had a problem? At what point throughout this use did you realize that you had a problem? What was the moment? Was it somebody else that, was it a relationship that was ending? Was it a uh, consequence from the law? What indicated that this was no longer something that you were managing well? It, it was a loss of relationship. You know, I never had a problem with the law. It, it's That was all fun and games. But when I lost, uh, when I lost... My fiance, we were planning a wedding, you know, and I was getting drunk and high the whole time. Like, it got worse at that period with all the stress of planning a wedding. That's my excuse. But that's when things really started, like, hitting home with me. When she left me, I was like, I got to get my girlfriend back. So I went to AA, sobered up, right, for, like, three months. I didn't get my girlfriend back, so that sucked. Gave up. We'll be right back with the second half of Roger's interview. But first we break to explore a lecture from Fred Holmquist, a world-renowned student and teacher of the 12-step recovery program and director of the Lodge program at the Dan Anderson Renewal Center at Hazelden Betty Ford in our second series, part one of the problem and the solution. Fred delivered a lecture that perhaps encapsulates the essence of the nature of addiction and alcoholism and the solution found through the working of the 12 steps better than any one man or woman has done since the Joe and Charlie series. In his lecture, Fred first breaks down the problem and solution by making a salient point. In order to define the solution, we first have to define the problem. He illustrates that one of the primary obstacles in finding meaningful recovery is that most active addicts and alcoholics misidentify the problem. Often, an addict or alcoholic will attempt to control their use, believing that their problem is that they use too much. This is an incomplete understanding of the problem. When an addict uses, or an alcoholic drinks, the phenomenon of craving is activated, which manifests inability to control how much or how long the use continues. In an alcoholic, this phenomenon of craving is an abnormal response or allergy, as it is referred to in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. In an addict, this is a normal response to a substance that is inherently addictive. This undeniable fact of addiction and alcoholism points to only one conclusion, as Fred states. We as alcoholics and addicts simply cannot use by virtue of the craving that is activated upon the first drink or the first use. This craving overpowers everything else, which renders personal willpower completely inoperable. Quite simply, we have an illness of the body which only results in one thing. We cannot safely drink or use, period. Fred continues to identify the impossible nature of the disease of addiction and alcoholism by relating the second component of the problem, the illness of the mind. If addiction and alcoholism was simply an illness of the body, that manifests itself as a phenomenon of craving, the answer would be just not to use. Much like a person with a peanut allergy avoids physical peril by avoiding tree nuts. In the addict and alcoholic, the illness of the mind comes in the form of an obsession that someday somehow they can drink or use normally. This obsession dominates the thoughts of the addict or alcoholic until the obsession is satiated whereby the inevitable truth hits us once again. We can't use. The obsession of the mind or illness, if you will, says we can't quit. 
This is the conundrum of the disease of alcoholism and addiction. The illness of the body results in we can't drink or use, and the illness of the mind results in a we can't quit. This invariably results in the unmanageability we addicts and alcoholics suffer with throughout our active addiction. Next week, we'll talk about Fred Holmquist's lecture surrounding the solution, or the way out, if you will. Now back to the second half of Roger's interview. Finally was able to give me some grasp of hope is that I can do this for me. I can't do it for my daughter. I can't do it to get her mother back. Because if I rely on those other people, what if, God forbid, something happened to my daughter? Now I get to go out and use again because I got an excuse. Brittany didn't come back to me. Now I got an excuse. I had to do it for me. So that's a good lesson, I think, because I've learned through my experience that the only person that I'll stay sober for is me. That I cannot stay sober for somebody else. I can't do it for my wife, my kids, my fiance, my parents. I only can stay sober for myself. Is that something that came apparent to you as well? Just recently, mm-hmm. within the last year, that's the thing that finally was able to give me some grasp of hope is that I can do this for me. I can't do it for my daughter. I can't do it to get her mother back. Because if I rely on those other people, what if, God forbid, something happened to my daughter? Now I get to go out and use again because I got an excuse. Brittany didn't come back to me. Now I got an excuse. I had to do it for me. and But I didn't, even at that time, the first loss of a relationship, I tried to get sober. She didn't come back, went back out. I didn't care anymore. It was like, fine. You know, and then... uh I, I just I don't know where I was going with that. There was it was that was my first uh first wake up call. Yeah, there but it there wasn't... was a, a a sort of an epiphany of sorts for you where you realized that your attempt to get sober for somebody else was not going to be successful because as you said People and relationships are not permanent. The only thing that's permanent is the relationship with ourselves. We'll always have that. And so we have to be sober for ourselves. Yeah, and that's something that I had to come to terms with. Somebody actually had to tell me that. I didn't figure that part out on my own. Um, But even then, it was a wake-up call. I went back to sleep shortly after that and it was uh it was it wasn't until I got sick I was probably 30 it was last year March 2015 having arguments with my daughter's mother in Kentucky and it was like two o'clock in the morning she's on the phone with her mom screaming I just want to go to sleep this was just Terrible situation. I went to the gas station. I bought a Heineken. And when I left the gas station, I could go left and go home. Or I could turn right, get on the freeway, and go to Michigan. So I went to Michigan. Drove through the night. uh, Ten hours, I think, is uh, is travel time on that. Uh, The next day, I was in the hospital. Uh, Literally dying. I didn't know. They asked me if I had a living will. I'm like, no, Why? Well, we don't know if you're going to make it. That was the thing. I got out of the hospital determined to stay sober, get the alcohol out of my system. Didn't want to stop smoking pot, but the alcohol was killing me. So we figured out in our early 20s that cocaine, we can't do cocaine anymore, can't do that, can't do that. We can do the other stuff, but cocaine, that's the problem. Right, right. It's always the one thing that's a problem. I can do everything else. So now you're on your deathbed and alcohol has led you there 
and it's straight out of the big book that if we don't recover, our options are jail, institution, or death. And you were facing and staring death right in its face. Yeah. And your response was, well, I just need to quit drinking. Right. Exactly. So, so what happened? I I got sober. It was 30 days. And that was the day I met you, Charlie. I remember that. I showed up at that thing. You gave me my 30-day coin. And uh, I wasn't white-knuckling it anymore. I had a support network. I had people who cared about me that hadn't ever met me before. Now I have a new community and a new camaraderie. So you felt the fellowship. You felt the love and the acceptance of the fellowship. Right, yeah. And talk about that. What happened? You're in the fellowship. You're staying sober, presumably. How does that, uh, how does that unfold? I forgot to mention the part where I ended up in the hospital in Michigan. I went back to Kentucky and tried to make things work, and that didn't even last two weeks before I ended up here on a bus with all my belongings. I weighed all of 114 pounds. I was skin hanging off my skull. And how, how tall are you? 5'7". You're 5'7", and you weighed 114 pounds. Yeah. That is amazing. So... I was really ill still. I came to Minnesota to stay with my sister and uh, her husband uh, to get well. They were there to help me. I had a choice to go back to Michigan, and I'm back in that same crowd. I'm back in that same dead end. I'm back in whatever kind of dead end job I can find at Burger King or McDonald's. With While I have an uh, associate's degree and I'm working on my bachelor's, I knew going back home where I'm from was a dead end. So I had the opportunity to come here. I was still very ill. And as that went on, I remember I remember after my 30 days, I don't remember how long after that, but my neighbor was over uh, watching the kids and uh, I was going to the store. Do you need anything? She's like, oh, I'll take a bottle of wine. I was like, okay. So I went and got that brought it back, and she was like, I was just kidding, you can have it. I was like, sure. And just like that, I finished that bottle, and the incredible sense of guilt hit me, and that's what got me going again on, okay, now i got to stay sober. I don't want So you relapsed on uh, on a bottle of wine because no good alcoholic ever lets... A bottle of wine go to waste. Yeah, I don't want to abuse it. I mean, it's really, Roger, the responsible thing to do. Right, right, because I, otherwise, where is it going to go? Exactly, exactly. She wasn't going to drink it, clearly, which is beyond comprehension. Right. You, what, you don't, wait, you don't want it? I don't understand. Right, like, what do you mean? Why did you ask for it? What do you mean you were kidding? Who jokes about these kinds of things? Right. Honestly. But of course it was her fault, right? It well, was her fault because she told me she needed the bottle. She told me to go to the store. Right. I, didn't, I didn't have anything to do with that. What was I going to do? I was just trying to be a nice guy, you know? And, and so you've got this guilt and remorse after the relapse because you've started to be a part of a community and a part of the... Uh, the fellowship, and there's some accountability in that fe- fellowship. So you were feeling maybe that uh, <coughs> uh, that because of the the accountability that you had start to build build and the relationships that you started to build, that the relapse really did ap- impact you for probably the first time in my life. And that this was last year, not it was probably June. I don't really remember because the way my brain works. So you get sober again after that relapse, and did, did you try anything different? Did you make any changes? Did, what happened? I got a sponsor. That's important. And I kept going to meetings. I came clean about the experience. And at the, at the same time, I don't know. I could probably be mixing up my memories because when I 
came to AA, I had 30 days sober. I think that relapse, quote unquote, happened before I entered sure. AA, and sure. then I sure. then I went. Then you decided days. that AA was okay. I got to go to AA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because clearly I can't do this on my own. I tried to stay clean for 30 days. I did it, but all of a sudden, a bottle presented itself, and I could not not drink it. Something like that. Yeah, and that makes sense as an alcoholic for me because without a program of action. And a simple kit of spiritual tools that the program gives me. If I don't have that, then I have no effective defense against the first drink. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that first step. Because uh, did you really get step one at that point when you came back in? You drink the bottle of wine after 30 days of white knuckling it, per se, right? And you get into the program. Uh, did you at that point? really accepted or um, uh, really internalized step one? No. And as, I, as I'm as i thinking about it, my memories are so screwed up from that time. That bottle of wine hit a relapse. This was all before I went to AA. I kept drinking. By the time I hit AA, I was 30 days sober, but this is when I was going and convincing myself that if I only get the craft beer, that $6 pint, <laughs> I'm in there. It, it's the good quality stuff. It's actually bread in a bottle, so I got my vitamins going on. Okay, so I just, I kept, now I'm on craft beer. And I'm not going to mess with Budweiser and, and Coors because that's, that's the piss water, right? Well, that's what alcoholics drink. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm classy. I was the same way. I, I For the last year and a half of my active alcoholism i drank only craft beer so clearly i could not be an alcoholic because alcoholics drink uh you know uh milwaukee's best light ice and i'm a connoisseur correct so eventually i made it to aa i don't even know oh my dui oh a nudge from the judge a little bit, yeah. That's when the law really started affecting my, my, my okay, now I got to stay sober. So, yeah, it was August something when I entered AA. Uh, the Actually getting pulled over and going to jail and having an upcoming court case still did not compel me to even uh, uh, go to AA, but my sister made me not drink because I'm living in her house. You can't drink. And... She'd known I was drinking, but I never around the kids, outside on the porch, only on weekends. But eventually, it's like my broken heart. I need to fix it. My broken heart is like there's something inside of me that's that's hurting, and the only thing I can do is drink it away. And then I ended up. It was like midnight. I started drinking at ten o'clock that morning. Passed out somewhere along the line, woke up at midnight, I've still got an hour to go get beer, and that's when I got pulled over uh, and, and went to jail and got out, and that's that was my first three days sober uh, at that time. So you got sober in AA. How long did you stay sober? Let's see. So from August something to October, it must have been 13th, so a, a year ago. It was October 13th. Uh, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I, I was like, okay, I'm not going to drink, but I'm, I'm going to go get some weed. And the good stuff, of course. Never never that Mr. Rags. Ditch weed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ditch weed was no good. It's purely medicinal quality. It's the only thing I'll, I was going to touch. Because, again, I'm a connoisseur, and I know my strains, and I know how to grow it, and I've been doing this forever, so obviously I can handle weed. Tell me how that worked out. Uh, the guilt trip. That that's that was when the guilt. Now I called my sponsor. <gasps> no, I got caught. I got caught, and that was the only thing that brought the guilt to the surface. I was high as shit, and I get home, and uh, I didn't look at my brother-in-law. I didn't look at my sister. I'm taking care of the dishes, and, and Joe's like, all right, I'm going to bed. Do you need anything, Roger? And I looked at him. I'm like, no, I'm all right. And he, next thing you know, he's going out to his car. I left my zigzags in there. He comes in. You can never use my car again, blah, blah, blah. He was pissed. So what are you going to do? I called my sponsor right up. I'm like, I'm high right now, dude. I don't, I, I don't know what to do. Well, what are you going to do about it? Now I had to think. I'm like, well, I'm going to go to a meeting and admit it and tell all my friends. 
And did you do that? I did. Yeah. And there's a certain sense of relief that comes with that, the honesty portion it's of the not program. Easy to come clean after a relapse. No. No, it wasn't. I didn't want to. I cringed. So we're back in recovery, we're back in the rooms. And uh, how long are we sober after that? Nine months. That's a long time. During that time, I made so many friends. I accomplished so much. I built my little empire. And it was awesome, you know, the, the love you feel in these rooms, the hugs, you know, the, the camaraderie, back to that, all of that, all these positive things that we experience in this program and our fellowship. I had all that. So you were really getting and getting embraced and feeling the full love of the fellowship, which yeah. is amazing. And I wouldn't trade the the love and 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 the comfort that the fellowship gives us in recovery for anything. But it's not everything. It doesn't doesn't quite fix us, does it? No. It's it's those steps. Half measures have veiled us nothing. And I was, to to the best of my ability, working those steps. And it was a huge uh, uh, experiment in honesty. Especially that fourth step where I got to be honest with myself. And then that fifth step where I got to tell you shit. You know, uh, and being your sponsor... Um, it's been a tremendous gift for me to be able to share the experience, strength, and hope that I've gotten from my sponsor, my grand sponsor, and countless people in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know that one of the greatest gifts of this program is the ability and the opportunity to pass the things that were so freely given to me to the alcoholic and addict that still suffers. And that's the only way that I get to keep this thing is by giving it away. It's the only way. So we just got done doing the first step. So let's fast forward a little bit. Nine months of recovery and you made a fateful decision to move out to California. Yeah, I went out to visit my family. Uh, somebody offered to smoke a bowl with me, so I did that. The next day, we were out on the American River with tequila and coolers full of beer. And I knew if I took that first drink, I was going to want that second one. I knew it. I, and, what and, I didn't and, know. So you knew it, yeah. right? You knew what prompted you to do it after being on your deathbed, after after uh, uh, attempts at staying sober and relapse, and uh, any normal person would think you're absolutely nuts, absolutely crazy. You how how could you think that that's even something that you should do? I don't. I didn't think of the long term consequences this is just temporary i get to do it today i've made it this far now i'm in california right like this is this is look at how far i've come from just a year ago and now i'm rafting on the american river this like man i got it made i've arrived i've arrived exactly like here i am end game now i can now i can drink my guard's down that too yeah uh, you know, I've arrived, I'm here, life is really good, and it's not going to be like it was. No, no. It'll be fine. Mm -hmm. So let's take that experience that we have now, and let's put that in the context of step one that we just got done doing together. And we learned a couple of really important things in step one today, which was number one, we learned that we have a problem and that problem is made up of two components and tell me about those it is an illness of the body and an illness of the mind let's so, talk about the illness of the body talk, well, talk about that for you i want to know what that means for you when i take that drink 
like on the American River. I'm going to have that shot of tequila. Thank God there's a cooler full of beer because I'm going to want that second one. And I learned a little bit about that today with the speakers we listened to where that touches my lips, tingles, touches my tongue, tingles, goes down my throat, hits my stomach, tingles. Oh, this is great. And then I learned that there's this allergy and I, I don't I don't know all the details. I listened to it. I don't know that we need to share it here. Not really. No, we With just need to know what that means for you. That yeah, yeah. And it produces a physical allergy and that phys- physical allergy, how did that man how does that manifest in in your um, alcoholism? How did that manifest for you? So you take a drink and what happens? Normal people take a drink and what happens? Normal people take a drink and they get full. And they set that half a drink down. They they just spent six dollars on this little cranberry and vodka and like they had a sip like what what's up and with that and then their tummy starts to feel a little goofy and then they stop drinking. Yeah, they got their little buzz on and now their body wants to reject it. Whereas my body says more of that, please. Bingo. So that's our that's our allergy to alcohol is, and I have the same allergy when I take a drink. Then the drink takes a drink. Then the drink takes me because it flips a physiological switch inside of my body that's fundamentally different than any other normal temperate drinker. And I can't stop. And the problem is the more I drink, the more I want to drink. And the allergy actually gets worse as I pursue my drinking. So I take one drink, I want another, and then I want another, and another, and another, and another, and another, and I can't stop. Yeah, so I just drink beer at the bar until the end of the night, and then have that shot of Jaeger, and then have a few more. Like, you know what, it's not closing time yet, so I still got cash in my pocket. I still got money in the ATM. Let me go get it. I know how that is. I just, it's, it's, that's the insanity that I experience. So then we think, okay, well, that's fine. Now I can't drink. I know, uh, I know that when I drink, I can't stop. So, but that's not the whole problem, is it? No, I only have, there's only one time I have a problem, two times. It's when I'm drinking or when I'm not. (laughs) So what happens to us when we're not drinking? The obsession of the mind, the illness of the mind. I want it, 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 I want it. And inevitably, we succumb to that obsession. We might be able to stay sober for a little while. Nine months, 30 days, 90 days. A year, it could be, right. But invariably, we will succumb to the idea. We never think, gee, I'd like 14 beers and six shots. No, that's not how that's it starts. That's not how that works. We think, got to be nice to have a couple drinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that two and a half beers puts me right where I need to be. Bingo. But we can't stop once we have two and oh, a half no, beers. No, because the feeling goes away about five minutes later, and now i got to drink the and rest the of that craving, beer. The physical craving kicks in. Yeah, yeah, and now I need more. And I need more, and I need more, and I need more. So we have a two-part problem, right? We have a problem that says when we... Put alcohol or drugs in our system, it produces a phenomenon of craving in which we cannot control how much we consume afterwards. And we have an obsession of the mind, an illness of the mind that says, I can only think about this until I succumb to that obsession. So that equates to two things right what are that what what's the root that we learned today of our problem we can't drink and we can't quit holy shit like i said those are the only two times i have a problem right so if we can't drink or use but we can't quit well well what the hell do we do well i think that I think that first step, right? Isn't that it? That's powerless, right? We're powerless. 
That's the definition of powerlessness, right? If we can't use but we can't quit, we are truly powerless over this alcohol. And that powerlessness is the essence of our disease and the disease of addiction and alcoholism. And until we can understand that, we can't get better, right? Because um, if we don't understand the problem, then certainly we can't understand a solution. We need to understand the problem. Yeah, the problem is cocaine, so I'm going to go drink now. <laughs> that's a we would. That's call, a symptom, that's isn't right. it? <laughs> we would call that an imperfect, imperfect understanding of the problem, right? Right. And if we have an imperfect understanding of the problem, what are we going to get? An imperfect solution. That's right. So we need to understand the problem as it is. And the problem is that we can't use, but we can't quit. Right? Right. So that's the problem. If we understand the problem, then we can work out a solution. But if we don't understand the problem, there's no way we're going to be able to find a solution that actually works for us. Right. And that's step one. And step one is so critical. It is the only step that we have to get perfect. It is the only step that we have to perform to perfection is to completely surrender to this disease of ours and realize to our innermost selves that we are powerless over drugs and alcohol and that our lives have become... Un and let's talk about that unmanageability. Why are our lives unmanageable? So we're powerless, but why are we... Why? What made my life unmanageable? Uh, I needed to manage my drugs and alcohol. But you couldn't? Well, that took away from managing my life. And of course, I couldn't manage the drugs and alcohol, but getting it and using it and that wheel that says, gotta, gotta, gotta. Bingo. So you've got a problem that you can't solve because you're powerless, yet you continue to try to solve it in an imperfect way, which presents the unmanageability, right? Right. Because we keep trying to solve symptoms. No cocaine, no hard liquor, no this, no that. Well, it's just going to be weed or whatever it is that we do in order to try to solve the symptoms, right? Problem is, it doesn't solve the core problem, which is we can't use and we can't quit and we're powerless. So we have unmanageable lives because it's characterized, as the big book says, by countless vain attempts at sobriety. sobriety. Always followed by still... Worse, relapse. Oh, and boy. Still worse relapse. I thought I had it hard before. Shit. And it's progressive, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't pick up where you left off. It picks up where you are. That's an interesting thing. I like that. It doesn't pick up where you left off. It picks up where you are. Because our bodies continue to age and our disease continues to progress. So the nature of our illness progresses even though we're not drinking. It becomes increasingly difficult to resist. The um, craving becomes stronger. But there is a solution. So if we have, and we'll end the podcast here, if our problem is powerlessness, well, then then what's the solution we've got to go find a power oh snap that's correct if we're powerless then we better find a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity because our lives are unmanageable or we're powerless and that in and of itself we don't get better by understanding the problem do we no, we just keep doing the same thing. That's Hoping right. Hoping it'll get better. That's the insanity, right? That's the insanity. I can handle it this time. Self-knowledge. And it's okay. Doesn't fix us, does it? No. No, I can't do it on my own. Bingo. So it's not that we can just understand the problem and get better because we can't. That's like we were watched Fred from Hazelden talk about that. And he said, well, it's like when you are sick with pneumonia. And a nurse says, you've got these symptoms, or a doctor says, you've got these symptoms, and they say, here's your problem. Well, you don't get cured of pneumonia by understanding that you have it, right? The right. Next, what's the next step? She offers a... Solution. That's right. Animal. And the solution's like a prescription, right? right. Some antibiotics and, you know, um, an you apple You mentioned an oxygen and, tank or right, an oxygen right, tank. Right, right, whatever it is. 
But understanding that there's a solution also doesn't get us well, does it? No, because nobody can force me into that oxygen tent to take those pills. And mm. I got to go all the way to the damn pharmacy. Like, you got to drag your happy ass to that pharmacy. Yeah. And get I could that be drinking right now, That's but right. Uh, I got to go to the <laughs> I store. I got to get my happy ass to the store and get me my prescription. And I better hurry up so I can get to the liquor store before it closes. Nothing's better than uh, um, uh, uh, drinking with pneumonia. I actually don't know that. I think that actually sounds pretty horrible. Uh, so uh, I drink with diabetes. That's, that, that's that's like Russian roulette, brother. Yeah. What which bottle is gonna have that bullet? Russian roulette. So leave our audience, Roger, with the single most important thing you learned today in all of the things that we covered in step one. I have to make a decision whether that's I'm going to... step three, right? So step yeah. three says, uh, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, right? Yeah. And if we make a decision to save money in a bank account, do we start saving a lot of money? Nope. Oh, what do we got to do? We got to take action. Ah, we have to make a decision to take action in steps four through nine. Is that... Is, so that's the, the for you that's the biggest thing you learned today yeah and now, that's huge are you kidding me it, well that's it, huge it reminds me of the first couple attempts at getting sober i made it through the first three steps half-assed and then i graduated so i was good right right you got your little certificate and your merit badge yep Cookie and, and a pat on that's the back right, that's right and you were good to go you can now drink normally again yeah right so uh, that's um, uh, uh, that reminds me of in chapter five, half measures availed us nothing. Yeah. yeah. We stood at the turning point. Yeah. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Yeah. God bless you, Roger. It's been a wonderful experience so far. I know that uh, there's a ton of people in the Wait Out podcast listening community that can relate to that story i certainly did say bye roger all right take care everybody i'll be working on me thank you for being a part of the way out where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions if you would like to reach out to the show you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com that's wayoutcast all one word dot com or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com there you can also find links to previous episodes on itunes stitcher and podcast garden if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast contact me at share at wayoutcast.com see you next time and remember if you don't change your sobriety day will